Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. It is Monday, November 28th. Welcome to Q. Bonjour, ici Denis Villeneuve. Hi, I'm Emily St. John Mandel. Hi, my name is Riz Ahmed, and you're listening to Q. Vous écoutez Q. And you're listening to Q with Tom Power. The Canadian chef Maddie Matheson says a kitchen is a lot like the theater. You got to know what you're doing, you can't mess up, and once the doors open and people get in their seats, you're live. That kind of thinking is exactly why Maddie's a celebrated chef and an actor on The Bear, the critically acclaimed show all about working in a kitchen. Maddie will tell you about the extreme lengths the crew went to to make their kitchen seem as real as possible, and how Maddie fell in love with cooking in the first place. That's coming up. Plus, Ki-Hui Kwan was a child star in the 80s, but the roles dried up. And he'll be here to tell you how his comeback happened in one of the most talked about films of the year. All that and more coming up on Q. So uh, we are not a cooking show. I should say that, you know, I think it's pretty well known by this point. We don't have a kitchen in the studio here where we make a ham every morning or anything like that. But every so often there is a chef that crosses into uh, broader pop culture. And the Canadian chef Maddie Matheson is one of those chefs. He has made a career out of being not your typical TV chef. He's a, he's a punk. He's covered in tattoos. He's so funny. He has this great wildness about him. But he's also an incredible chef and restaurateur. There are people who go to Maddie's restaurants like Rizzo's in Fort Erie, Ontario, or Prime Seafood Palace in Toronto. And they're drawn in by him just as much as they are by the food. I mean, how can you not be? Just listen. Hey, everybody! We got a lovely goat. Look at this goat. Chivo, we are finally going to make some goat birria. Chivo, I think is what you say. That's him on Cooking Something, one of his many YouTube shows. Recently, Maddie launched his own clothing line, Rosa Rugosa. Rosa Rugosa? Rosa Rugosa. He's also worked on The Bear, one of the most talked about shows this year. Uh, Maddie's a co-producer and actor, a consulting chef on the FX show. Not bad for a guy who really didn't grow up a dream of being a chef. He's also someone I saw at a Grateful Dead concert in Buffalo one time, mm. drinking a Gatorade. You, well, you know, you can only expand your mind so much. <laughs> Maddie Matheson joins me now in the studio. Hi. Thanks for having me. Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Today's yeah. a beautiful day. Can we talk about The Bear for a second? Mm. Um, yeah. The Bear, which I, I watched, I think I watched it in one day. Oh. It's like 13 episodes. No, eight. Eight episodes. <laughs> half! Uh, half of it's, it. It's 133 episodes. <laughs> and it's 30, 27, 30 minutes each. Yeah, yeah. It has been called Flawless. Mm. And I, I didn't know you were involved. Yeah. In A lot of people just think I was like the actor. And they're like, oh my God, Maddie's like in it. And I was just like, error. I was just like, well, I'm like a consultant and a producer, but, you know, it's fine. Just fact. I'm just fact with the screwdriver digging around in my ear. So I should be clear about this. You are an actor in it. I am. I, I play Neil Fack. You are the kind of dude who goes into this struggling – well, not necessarily. I will say struggling. Italian beef sandwich shop. No, it's struggling. And you are the this handyman friend of the owners. Yeah. And you are there to, to fix everything. 
Yeah, I'm a hanger on. Like I'm asking for free meals. Yeah. You know, I'm just there being like, "Hey, can I get a little lunch here?" And I'm just fixing the stand mixer. You know. Well, how was acting? Had you you hadn't done any acting before? Acting is intense. Acting is. Um, I'm not a script guy. You know, my whole life is a riff. My whole life is one take. My whole career is based off of whatever the heck I'm going to say. So it's just like learning and memorizing words is like I'm really smart in a lot of ways. You know, I'm, I'm not a complete dumb-dumb as no, I seem. No. But it's like the uh, the acting is really intense because of the pressure and because I'm a people pleaser. I want to do, I get caught up in wanting to do a really good job and then I get caught up in like all these people are actually actors. They're very good Exceptional actors. Exceptional actors. They all – everyone shows up and guess what? They know everyone's lines. And then I'm sitting there and they're like, Maddie, we're about to do a scene with FAC. And Jeremy will be like, let's go run lines. Jeremy is the guy who plays – Jeremy Allen White, mm-hmm. you know, Jaw, uh, the, hero, the hero. But I, I, acting is really scary. Doing something you've never done before is scary because I was brought on as just a consultant first. That means that the restaurant is largely takes place in a kitchen in a restaurant and you are there to make sure they're cooking things. Like, give me an example of something you're teaching them. I'm uh, working with the chefs on movement. I'm working on the chefs with language. The actors who are playing chefs with movement, yeah. with language. The way that they move within the space. So like I'm helping almost like there's moments where I'm like helping choreograph how would they move throughout the kitchen. If we're – because the thing is it's very – you know, I don't think it's shot completely like Robert Altman stuff, but it's like – longer one shots very like we want to have five conversations happening at once and the camera's moving and focusing and unfocusing on different characters as they're talking and it's just this kind of circle right you're just in the kitchen doing this circle constantly and i would help move like okay you're gonna like touch this pan then you're gonna what would a chef do as they're what would everybody kind of physically do even though in the script they're like tina is cutting onions the you know, Sydney is is making a cartouche. Richie's being like, what the heck is a cartouche? So how do we make that move and feel the way that it would in real life? What's something that they didn't know? Like, What was something that they didn't know that you had to be like, there's this? Um, just like, you know, just like small little nuances of like when you walk in and out of a walk-in, you can kind of give it a tap, letting somebody know you're coming in and out just in case they have something in their hands. There's a lot of like really small weird courtesies, like saying corner and behind and tapping things and like just doing all of these little things that not necessarily they were there. Some of them were there. Some of them weren't. And so I think once we were in the space, I was I was just like I would work the space the way that I would for service. So I would kind of do a trial and be like, okay, they need to do this. And how would I do this? I'd got to go. How would I check that chicken? How would I taste this mise en place? How would I look at this? How would I look at somebody and talk to them about what they're doing in that moment? You're constantly hovering. Yeah. You know, you're constantly checking things, tasting things, motivating people, telling them what to do, telling them what not to do. Were you cooking too? Like, were you? We were cooking every morning. So like I was working with the set and prop. So like set and prop people are d- different people. They're all unionized. Yeah. So it's just like, it's an interesting thing because some people can't like it took me a while to figure out what i can do and what i can't do because like i can't move a cutting board because that's somebody's job yeah and so like i come from a world where like no unions and everyone does every like i'm just like come from a world where i'm like doing everything yeah yeah so it was an interesting thing finding that balance where i i'd actually stop and be like hey roper we're gonna have to do this this and this can you have your team move that stuff and then they because it would take me two seconds to just go in and move a knife or move a cutting board or do a thing or rearrange or do something like that but i would do it 
kind of in my mind going and be like, okay, I'd move this here, do this, do this, take away that's too many pots for this scene. This is too, like, you know, this, there's no salt and pepper. They need salt and pepper. They would use that on this dish right now. You wouldn't know that, but it would make sense if anybody else is watching it that is a chef. Right. So that was the thing is like, I would want to make sure that even though the focus isn't on that, you would still have all your mise en place ready. Like even if you opened all the fridges on the set, they were ready to make salads, sandwiches, all the things on the actual menu. So like that menu, you don't even really see it, but the menu out in the beef was prepped every day. So then if the actors actually could p- pull out and make a mortadella sandwich, they could make a Greek salad, they could do anything that they needed to do. So at least they were actually doing the thing in their mind that they should be doing, even if the cameras weren't on them. That is – I have two things on that. One is that um, – how do I put this now? One is that I've had people say to me who have worked in restaurants, people very close to me have worked in restaurants. We know a lot of the, the same kind of – especially back home. Right. They've said, um, I have a – like the show gave me a specific kind of anxiety because mm. it felt so real. Right. It felt so real to the anxiety I feel when I'm working in a kitchen. Yeah, there's a lot of anxiety. Like it, it is um, – You know what I mean? Like it was – It's it, high-pressure it, stuff. It's It's live. The thing is – Kitchens and restaurants and anxieties is like theater. Every night I'm getting ready to do something. People are showing up at a certain time. I can't really make a mistake, right? And so it, it's very similar to live theater, live acting. And I was using that a lot with the actors because then they could actually understand what that meant. And I was just like, every day we're practicing and making mise en place. That's your lines, you know? Then when the doors open and guests come in, we're acting. We're, we're, we're cooking. We're right, moving. Right. Every single thing needs to be done. But the thing is, they don't see you acting. They don't see your performance. They just see the final dish. Wow. So it's just like one of those things where maybe you can grab onto that. But it's like I wanted everything to be – and sort of every, the actors did. Like the actors wanted to set up their own stations by the end of it. Like right. they wanted – they were like, oh, where's my spoon? And like where's this? And like everyone had like – all of a sudden they had their own – mise en place they had their small wares they were like oh my station isn't set up right i don't have my pens and my thing and so like even the actors were so amazing and like it was this beautiful moment where everyone cared even the staff or the crew the crew was so cool because everyone started talking the way that we talked like the camera people are saying like behind and doing these things and like it was a really very kind of amazing uh workplace that's for sure Another thing that I was thinking of, and, and maybe I'm overthinking this a little bit, but like you, and we're going to talk about this in a second, you who, and you and I have talked about this, can make, or are trained in like French cooking, like high level mm. French cooking. The lead character in The Bear is worked at the French Laundry, I think. Like one He's of worked the, at like some mysterious three-star restaurants. Yeah, yeah. yeah. high level Michelin-y Yeah, um, yeah, yeah 100%. Was called the best chef in America. Yeah, he was, yeah. And then goes and, and works in Italian uh, ends up making Italian beef or like and brings that same spirit of, of um, aptitude to making Italian beef sandwiches. I I thought about you during that. Mm-hmm. I was like, Maddie's also somebody who is has been trained in a really, really high level of cooking mm. and, and ideologically also makes tacos and also makes burgers and pizza. Am I overthinking this? No, it is one of those things where that sh- – if you would have told me – 15 years ago that I would have uh, a burger shop or, you know, a bun me shop or a chicken parm place, like I'd be like, no, because I was a chef, you know, and in my brain, it was like one of those things that like, I always wanted to make Maddie food. I wanted to make things that I, it was me, I create, I chose Caraway. And, And now that I'm 40 and understand kind of the world a little bit, my ego's far gone and I just want to feed people. 
I want to give people something that's warm, especially now since the pandemics. It's just like I just want people to be able to – there's so many decisions every day. There's yeah. so many things being taken away, given back, all these things. And it's just like my whole brain kind of clicked in and I was just like I just want people not – like burger, yeah. chicken parm, yeah. spaghetti, yeah. pizza, yeah. tacos. It's funny to hear you say like 15 – if you asked me 15 years ago, I wouldn't have – I never would have said I'd be making burgers and stuff like that. But I think if had, you, had we asked you – 35 years ago or 30 years ago, you wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have said you'd be a chef at all. No, I didn't. No, I just wanted, the only reason I wanted to, went to cooking school is to get out of town, you know? And Fort, I, Fort Erie, right? Fort Erie. And the only reason I went into cooking school because I couldn't get into anything else. I wasn't an academic. I didn't care about high school. I was like a punk that didn't care. I was just like, whatever, man. Like, you know, like I was just like, I'm not going to be a scientist. I'm not going to be a mathematician. I'm not going to do sports. So what else did I learn here? You know, I don't – there's nothing else that creatively that ever clicked with me. But cooking is, is, is something that clicked very much so and has given me literally everything, you know? Help me understand this a little bit more because I, I have, I have uh, some friends who I went to like high school with yeah. who similarly were, you know, they were punks and they didn't, they didn't do really well in school. Mm. And, you know, I would hang out with them at all ages shows. Yeah. And maybe there was like a part of me that was sort of like, I wonder, like, I wonder what's going to happen to those guys, you know? And a lot of them mm. have thrived like yourself. So mm. I want to be clear about you. Like you went to cooking school and then you worked in really respected restaurants like like La, La Select, uh, Bistro, and La, yeah. La Palette here in, in Toronto. Same with these friends of mine that these people who – these friends who had a hard time kind of getting it together in that way, like mm. in these traditional ways, not just found a home in kitchens, but found a home in really regimented kitchens. Mm. What, what's, what's that all about? Well, you, I think the thing is, is we – I think most people are looking to be a part of something. Right, and a lot of people don't really realize um, that there is a, a space for everybody, and I think that it just took me a long time to find my space. And when I went to cooking school, it was something that I didn't really realize that I could do it relatively easy. I I, I could sharpen my knives. Working all day didn't really bug me, you know. I, I enjoyed. Eating, you had an aptitude for it. Yeah, like I, like I was just like, I never missed class. You know, like I, I, I was getting high grades for just showing up. Like making today, we're gonna make beef stock. Oh, I got to roast bones and some mirepoix. Okay, I got to cut up carrots. I'm gonna get graded on this. I'm gonna like, I have to clarify this. I have to make some other sauces. I have to take this sauce and now make five other sauces out of this sauce. And that's what this is. What this is. Okay, this is amazing. And then I get to, like, it was relative, it was a thing that, like, most people that could stress them out, like me getting stressed out if I had to sit down at a desk and write out math equations or do something or geography. Like, I don't, I literally, my references are straight from high school because I don't even know. I have no idea what anybody does. It's just like cooking to me was just a thing that, like, top, and, and it gave me something that all of a sudden I was just like, oh, I was just in the wrong thing. Like, I don't think high school is ridiculous, but I think it's just like, it actually isn't for everybody. It, it, it's a social thing. Cool. No. I got to hang out. I was, I, a, you know, I, I, like, did, I didn't do that well in high school either. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it's, it's like, it doesn't mean that you're not smart. It doesn't mean that you're not ambitious. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be great at anything. Nobody knows anything. Nobody knows anything at 14 to 18 or 19, you know, like it's a, it's a wild thing. It's like, it, it, it's a very, you, we're still mashed potatoes, you know? And, and I think it's, it's one of those things where it's just like, 
I don't know, cooking, it was just an amazing thing. And it, it gave me like self-confidence. It, it built up self-esteem and started building up my ego. Yeah. You know, like it, it was just like, huh, I'm a chef. I'm wearing chef whites in this thing. And I really like it. How, um, oh, Maddie, now I, I'm curious about this, but I'll, I'll remind you that we're pre-taping this. We don't have to talk about it. Right. But like, so, so then kind of what happens? Like you're working in kitchens and I wasn't in, living in Toronto at this point. Right, right. But from my, my understanding of it is that that you were drinking a lot and doing yeah, a lot yeah. of drugs. Well, I was drinking a lot in cooking school. Yeah. I was just young. I was drinking a lot in high school. I was just like, I was just party boy. Smoke cigs, drink, and do drugs all day. Is it is it a kitchen? Is it Because I think one thing that Bourdain did yeah. was really shine a light on the idea that there's this like drinking and and, and drugs kind of culture in kitchens. Right. I don't know. But I think also that might have become a bit overblown too. What like how much of the kitchen culture thing have to do with the drinking and the drugs? And well, all I think I, I I I liked being a part of something once again. Like I like punk music. I like a being like I loved being in a high school a hardcore band. I love friends. I love I love people. I thought you made the show. Honest to God, I, I love you friends. <laughs> you know, I love Courtney Cox. I love Courtney Cox. Uh, you know, I love she's Chandler. great. I love Chandler. He's a wild one. But I think it's um, the. Um, you know, I think it is a. Uh, is there something in the kitchens that leads itself to that? I think romanticized kind of it and was it wrote you know kitchen. It was like I remember I was in my first year of college in two thousand, and my my I got two books. I got Kitchen Confidential, and I got Nose to Tail Cooking by Fergus, you know Henderson, and and Trevor, you know, and and I think it's like. Those two books to me are still kind of like the litmus test of, of like what my experience was. And also like there is no good time to drink. You finish at 12, 1 in the morning. You go to a bar. You get one hour of drinking. And then what? You go to an after hours. Yeah. And, and your adrenaline is going so hard from working because the thing too is with kitchens is like your adrenaline's going. You get there at like noon, 11, 8 a.m. It doesn't – I don't know what it is. You get there when you get there. The adrenaline of getting ready, getting your mise en place set is a lot. Then the service is another rush. Yeah. And then you don't when you're young, you don't come down from that. You go one more. And and that's the thing is like I I I really got along with everybody and we just wanted to keep going. And every night there's always going to be somebody that wants to go out. Yeah. There's always going to be a group of people and, that want to go, go out. You were going out. You were going out. I was most, going out every night. Going I was out like every night. Yeah, I didn't sleep for like 15 years. So then when the <laughs> when then then so then what happens? You, you had a heart attack? Well, yeah. I, well, <laughs> yeah. The, Is that okay? Uh, I mean, do you want to yeah, yeah, sure. I don't care. It's a fact. But uh, yeah, I had a heart attack at 29. Like, well, I think what I was saying is you have a heart attack at 29. Is that- But that's like after, like that's like after, like there's like, you know, Le Select, then La Palette, and then we opened Oddfellows. I opened my first restaurant when I was like 26. Yeah. Who in the right mind at twenty six should be any type of power or any type of anything? Yeah, you know. Yeah, and then and then we opened parts and labor when I was twenty seven. So you're so you you're drinking and 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 doing drugs and, and smoking and you're stressed out probably from all that, right? Twenty six. Yeah, like, I think you're you're stressed out, but not even you're just riding high. Like everyone, you know, that's when all of a sudden I start getting like press and people telling me who's this person and like you know a lot of ego stuff and yeah. and and when you're young it's hard to to be level you know like now i'm very aware of everything that's happening and i'm like i don't get excited about the good stuff i don't get bummed about the bad stuff and i kind of try to just keep my lane you know and it's just like i can't listen to both sides 
good or bad, and it doesn't matter. I just do the work, and I, that's what I focus on. You but stop it's just worrying like, about praise, and you stop worrying about criticism. Yeah, 100%, like years ago. And it just because it doesn't matter. Everyone's blowing up your tires and stabbing you yeah. your tires. You know, and it's just like, cool, whatever. I'm just going to do my thing and make my art and, and live my life. And your, your perspective and your objectives are your objectives. I'm just trying to feed people and have a good time. Is, <laughs> is getting sober hard in a job? That, so after you have the heart attack, a little bit after you have the heart attack, you get so. Is getting sober hard in an industry of got to be. Yeah, I had to set up a lot of boundaries. I had to set up a lot of things where like, you know, I was going to meetings every day and like I would leave the restaurant every single day at 10 o'clock. If there was tables still eating because we would serve food to 11, I would leave. I turned myself into like a werewolf. I don't stay past a certain time. I don't put myself in situations. I don't go to, I didn't go to bars for five years. I wouldn't walk into a bar. You go home and go to bed. I go to bed. Like I just, there's nothing for me. Yeah. What, I'm going to have a conversation that's going to change my life at 3 a.m.? Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Let me tell you a secret. No. And it's just like I just took myself completely out of the equation of anything and I started focusing 100% on me and Trish and my goals. And I never even understood goals. I never understood life. I never understood like getting anywhere. I don't know what you mean. So you, 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 you take yourself out of going out to drinking uh, until 3 or 4 in the morning. Well, and 6 or 7. 6 or 7. 7 or the 8 next or day. 11. Yeah, yeah no, I know, like, I know. My bedtime forever was 6. Right. Like that was my like I had to be home by six because Trish woke up because she had a regular job. I had to be home by the time Trish woke up. So like this is your this is your wife. This yeah, is this her, is yeah. twenty two yeah. years. Yeah, the angel. Yeah, so she you had to, you you needed to be in bed so that when she woke <laughs> up you were there. Yeah, and most of the time I wasn't. Right. So you're telling me that you you would get out of there at ten o'clock. You you, you needed to get out of that. The, you needed you to stop go going home. to the bars. And you said I discovered goals like. You yeah. you had to fill that with something. You had to. Well, you just never had. I I I think people just misconstrue what real goals are, or like said it like you know like when I got when I got clean, I owed a lot of money to people. Oh yeah, you know, so I had to like clean up clean up my mess that I created, and I made that my first goal was to pay back every single person I ever borrowed a dollar from, stole from, borrowed from drug dealers, whatever. You know, and, and I, I set out a plan and, and you know, my plan was we had to like move. We, I was like, I can't afford to do the way that we live right now. We're renting a house. I can't rent a house. We're going to move into a one bedroom apartment on top of Logas in Parkdale. And it's $900 a month. If I do, if we do that for one year, I'll be able to pay off all my debt, become debt free. And then I can make a decision on what I can start thinking about doing with the rest of my life. Because until I do that, I'll be I'm I, you you I had to just stop everything and just focus a hundred percent on getting debt free, and that was my biggest thing because I was just like I can't be beholden to anybody, no yeah. debts, no banks, no bosses, no anything. And my goal was to first become my own. I didn't want a boss. I wanted there to be nobody above me, but I wanted nobody to be above me because I wanted to be completely self sufficient. I didn't want to rely on anybody. Yeah, you know. I mean, and you had to talk Trish into this. You had to talk your partner into all this too. Yeah, know? she was like running J Crew. Like she opened like three or four J Crews in Canada. She had a great job. She was yeah. great, and and I didn't allow her to give me one dollar to like pay back anything else because it was my mess, and she didn't want to give me one dollar because yeah. you know I used to you know a couple of eviction notices hidden around and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. I was like you know I was a pretty big mess at a certain point, but I think it was um, a deal. You know, I was just like if we do this. 
and I can and if I can do this, yeah, that's change. That that's that's real. That is that's proof in the pudding. Yeah, that is like there's nothing realer than like actually committing on like not do like I'm not gonna spend a dollar. Yeah, I'm not gonna buy a T-shirt. I'm yeah. not gonna buy. Any, I got enough clothes. I'm good. I got clothes. I got an apartment. We're cool. I don't need a car. I don't need anything. I'm not buying gas. You don't need criticism. You don't need praise. I'm just going to do focus on the real thing. The real thing, which the real is getting thing. out of debt. Yeah. And then I can begin to start thinking about stuff. And at that same moment, I started doing – and that's what brought me out of the restaurant industry because yeah. I left the restaurant industry for years because that's – at that same moment, I started doing videos with Vice and I started – like that was a whole anomaly where I never pitched a show. I never asked them. They like, you know, they're like, we want to do a video with you. Like we want you to make a cheeseburger video. I was just like, what? Okay. Yeah. Then it gets 70 trillion views on YouTube. And, and then, like yeah. And then it's just like one of those things where I was just like, oh, I could do that again. And it was just like, that was the craziest thing was like, I got paid for that cheeseburger video. I got 500 bucks Yeah, and it was the most money I ever made in my life. And in a single day, I was just like, it took me like two hours to make that video. And I was just like, I just made $500. If I focus on this, I can actually pay off my debt faster. I could do this. I could do this. I could do that. I could like, wow, there's, I've never known that I couldn't do anything but be a chef. Can you talk to me about this, this clothing, the decision to start this closing line, uh, Rosa Rugosa. I'm, Rosa I'm, Rugosa. I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time. With Rosa Rugosa, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a flower. It's a flower, you know. It's a five-leaf rose, grows in gravel. What? What? Where did the idea come to start this clothing line? I just like wearing clothes. I like wearing workwear. I like wearing clothes that are durable. I like wearing clothes that are neutral. It it really came down to that, and then it's just like I love also doing stuff. I love creating. I love making businesses. You know? Yeah. And how's, how's, how is it doing that? Doing great. No, doing I don't great. mean. I don't mean. Can I, can I see your papers? I mean, like, I mean. I think it's it, 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 it's um. How is it for you? It's a beautiful thing because the, the thing too is like Rosa Ragosa was going to be just a clothing company, and before the pandemic, we were aligned and ready. We had our patterns, we had our styles, we had all this stuff, and we were going to get them made at a factory. Then the pandemic hit, and that factory closed, and Ray, our designer and partner, was like, "Hey, like." I don't know what we're going to do. We can probably find another thing. We're probably have to going to put it on hold until whenever this stuff goes away, blah, blah, blah. And then one day, I think the factory guy called Ray and was just like, yo, all the machines that you guys need are old vintage machines, like triple stitch and all these things. And like, if you need them, we'll sell them to you. They're not really worth that much money. Like if there's no computers in them, there's no nothing. It's all these old machines. Yeah. And, um, and Ray came to us and was just like, we can buy all of the equipment and we can build a factory. And then in our minds, we're like, huh, but that's a separate business. That is a whole other world. Hiring people, having, you know, onboarding, training, HR, benefits, life, people, you know, that's a business. That is a bigger business than the actual business. Yeah. And we sat on it for a while and we're like, well, if we don't do it, then we don't do it. And then all of this we've been working on for years. Then all of a sudden we're going to just let this go. And uh, we all decided not to. And we bought – it was you know around 25 grand worth of equipment. We bought it and we, we just took another space and we put in some equipment. Ray knows how to sew everything and fix everything and run these machines actually. We hired some sewers and uh, you know we uh, have built a little factory. And the factory of roses is what we call it. Yeah. Because the thing is, is like 
we are really like restaurants are restaurants. It's the same thing. Businesses are business, physical businesses, brick and mortars are things. What does that person need to do within that building? Yeah. Can we supply that? And can we pay them well? Can we give them benefits? Can we do this? All the other stuff that we do in our restaurants, oh, we can just do that with our sewers. We can just, it's, a, it's you know, making cheeseburgers and sewing pants is relatively maybe the same. Yeah. You know, it's doing a thing. I tell you what strikes me about this is that, and, and you're going to think this is silly, but like I had this conversation, and this is the ready for the biggest name drop of all time. Here we go. I had this conversation with Bono the other day. Mm. One name. One. You could just be Maddie, I guess. Maddie. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't know that mm. you two were a punk band when they started. Mm. And I said, you know, when you switched to the – when you had the Joshua Tree and everything blew up, yeah. he said, uh, what was that like for you? Because all of a sudden you had a big hit record. And, right. and, and he said, he said, we've always been a punk band in spirit, like right. in that we look after our people. Mm. We make real things. We, we, we look – we have the same crew we've had since 1984. Yeah. And I feel like – that when I'm talking to you right now, that like the idea of like I'm going to make burgers, I'm going to look after people, I'm going to I'm going to build something. Like I don't want any bosses, I don't want any, I don't want to have to be beholden to anybody, yeah. I don't want to have any debt, I don't want to blah 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 blah. Like it's all in. Well, we're trying to learn how to do that too, right? Like there's like a lot of that stuff is like I learned what not to do in restaurants for a long time too. Yeah, but you hear what I'm saying? Like it feels like I know you come from punk rock. It feels like that is well. There's a the DIY mentality. That's what I mean. There, it is like do it yourself. And, you know, the thing about being in, a, in the punk and hardcore kind of scene is like you can't just be a stage potato. You got to make a scene. You got to you got to put on a show. You got to be in a band. You got to there's you can't just take. Right. That makes you kind of a poser. I feel. Yeah. You got to participate. You can't just be a part of a subculture and just take and be some like wallflower. Yeah. It's like, sure, you can, I guess. But it's just like, what is what is that's not what it's about. Yeah. And I think that is what always like at a young age, I was put on hardcore shows and had a band in high school that used it. That's how I know all the AOF guys, because yeah. all of our different bands used to all play together in high school. Yeah. And it's just like all that. You know, it's about not just taking and it's about giving. And it's like the thing, too, is is I think because of my parents, I love like we had like an open door policy. We got four kids. All of our friends were over at our house every day. Our house was like the house. So it was just like that to me is like how I want. I want everyone to shine. I want everyone to have a piece. I want everyone like, you know, to be a part of it. Truly, and to be taken care of and be like, what my job is to be like, what do you need? You need that? You need a printer? Let's find a printer. Right. You, you, you know, you need a better stove? Let's find a better stove. You need a pan? You need this? You need that? Like, it's just like, that's my job is to facilitate things. And I think it's, um, I don't know. It's just like. It does feel related to that. It does feel like the same kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's just like my, my mentality is my mentality from all of my experience of doing things wrong, from doing things right, from failing. You know, from failing incredibly. I, all the restaurants that I used to run aren't open. I've closed right. a couple restaurants yeah. in my life. Yeah. I have failed many times. Yeah. I've almost died. I've almost lost – well, I've lost pretty much everything. And then, you know, baby steps. I'm a big crawl, walk, run type of person. Even though it seems like I'm sprinting 100 miles an hour, I'm crawl, walking. I'm just walking right now. Like, this is me. I'm just, like, figuring things out. I'm at day one. I opened, like, my first restaurant kind of a year and a half ago. So what? what what's next? Like, what do you – what? not not like, hey – Now so what, it's what just you, take a breath and, like, f- make all of these things work. Do you have a – do you have another goal, though? Do you have – Um, 
I want to be truly successful in, in business. I want, I want to be able to take the things that I've creating things have uh, at this point have become rather easy, you know, opening a restaurant, doing these types of things. Now it's like, how do we hold on to them? How do we make them long lasting? How do we actually make them real? You know, how do we make them last 10 years? It takes a lot of things. It takes a lot of dedication. It takes a lot of listening. It takes a lot of like, you know, I'm not right all the time. Yeah. You know, it is, I've made bad decisions. Yeah. I continuously make bad decisions. Yeah. I need to learn how to listen to people. And I do. I love it. And, and it's one of those things that it's just like, now it's like, I have a clothing company. I sell, I make right, you know, we're working on my third cookbook. It's like producing, like I'm on season, I'm an executive producer now on The Bear. It's like, we're doing things. And it's just like, I just want to make sure that all these things are done better. And and I just want to like work on the I I got a ton of stuff and I, I even my family like be more present with my family and and have more time with my children and more time with Trish and like all those things are like really and that's a big thing with like even like Rizzo's opening in Crystal Beach which is like five minutes from our farm. This is the Italian Parm place. Yeah, and it's just based off like it's just like named after your daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rizzo's. And then it's like most of the recipes are based off Trisha's family. Her, her mom is Italian from Niagara Falls. And, uh, you know, it's it's based off of my love coming from like a meat and potatoes, meatloaf, you know, taco night was old El Paso, you know, kind of family and having like, you know, we would have like boiled dinner, you know, like just oh, yeah, jigs dinner, yeah. jigs dinner. And, and like my dad was just like mashed potatoes was like boiled potatoes forked. You know, we he didn't like mashed potatoes with like milk and butter. You know, it was just like we would always have turnip or or rutabaga and potato and then like a piece of meat, you yeah. know? Yeah, I love that. And going to like Trisha's house in high school for the first time, I was just like, wait, you guys got what, – what's it? Like you guys have salad every dinner? The spices? You have salad and you have like spaghetti and you have like chicken cutlets and like you're having dessert and like you're having these <laughs> things and like everyone's having a coffee. I was like, is this Christmas? Or like what is – like this is Tuesday? This is Tuesday? I, know. I was talking to uh, mom about that the other day. My mom's, an inc- by the way, an incredible cook, like right. an incredible cook. Uh, but growing up in Newfoundland, I, I, I didn't know I liked steak because I thought mm-hmm. steak was that thing that cupped up. Yeah, the bologna. Yeah, when you – no, 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 not Newfoundland steak, not yeah. like bologna, <laughs> like fried steak. Okay. Like little, little tiny – Little minute yeah, steaks. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought that's what steak was and I thought it was bad. Yeah. So yeah. I, I understand you. And then I went to someone's house and I was like, it's, it's, it's what? You can have temperatures? Wait, wait. There's a medium? There's a medium <laughs> rare? No. There's a, there's a thing called a ribeye? And and if, you're, if your kids – if I asked your kids, mm. uh, what does your dad do for a living? What do they say? What do they think you do? <laughs> um, do they think you're a chef? Do I they think, think they think I'm a chef. I keep it kind of easy. Like I'm always like, because they ask. They're like, what do you do? And that's the thing is like now Rizzo's is there so they can physically see it. Like they've only been in trial because, because of the pandemic. They never even, they just recently have been to some of the restaurants, you know, and still haven't even been to all the restaurants. And it's like they've only been to PSP once during the day because, you know, we live far away. I don't know. It's just like we're so cozy where we are. But they'd and, say chef maybe? Yeah, they would say chef. It's so funny. Like Mac will ask. He's like, are you famous? Like he, like he's like almost seven. And he's just like, are you famous? I'm like, no, nah, I'm not any. I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the same as everybody else, Mac. You know, like I'm just like, I don't know if I'm famous. I'm just like, I'm just, I do a lot of things. But I'm always like, I'm a chef. Like anybody, if I ever meet anybody on the street, they're like, so what do you do? 
And I'm like, I'm just, a, I'm a chef, you know. Yeah. It's just like, what, 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 what? I'm just Maddie. And a lot of the times, I, most of the time, I'm just like, I'm just Maddie. Mm-hmm. What do I do? I don't know. I do whatever I want. I do, <laughs> you know, like I kind of, if I want to do something, I'll figure it out and do it and give it a shot. I'm, I'm always stupid enough to jump, you know. Thanks for coming in, man. Thanks for having me. Are you kidding me? Come on. I love I love whenever you come in. Well, it's a beautiful moment between just great souls. Oh, you're kidding me! You're kidding we're, me. We're just here. We got the, like I, I just want to go sit in those other little coffee tanned leather chairs over there. Do and you just know? Do you know? Talking. Do you know where we got those? Where we stole them from Dragons Den. Oh, good, Dragons Den. Come on, are those guys actually rich and smart? This is a Boston pizza guy. He's, oh, right. he's smart. Okay, I guess maybe. he's all right. He's, you know? he's fine. Yeah. But when you go to him and go like, I got a measuring tape that's made of, yeah. you know, it's made. I know. I, I'm always. I honestly, I'm in my thing being like the blanket. I'm like, I need to come up with a blanket. <laughs> need to come, you know, like it's just like you see these things. And you're like, wait, I, I need to come it. up with a thing that's a plant that tells you you're doing great. I got a blanket. It's a camera. It's a yeah. camera blanket. The whole blanket. blanket is just one. It's a tells you. Uh, yeah, I don't it's a horoscope know. blanket. See, we can't do it. I'm yeah, not no. that. I like to just be in the mud all day and open up restaurants and just like. Just survival mode all day. I like to ask half a good Charlotte, what do you mean? That's what I, that's what I do for a living. <laughs> that's what half I a do. good Charlotte. What do you the mean? Madden brothers, how are you guys doing? Benji, what do you mean by but, that? Hey, what do you mean by that? Uh, Maddie Matheson, Canadian chef, media personality, clothing designer, factory owner. He's not a businessman. He's a businessman. You can watch him on season one of The Bear, available on Disney+. Plus. You can uh, check out his new clothing line called Rosa Rugosa. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm John Power. You're listening to Q. So Marin Morris is one of the biggest stars in country music right now. Marin Morris. Um, and she's become a country star in a really interesting way because she's written very thoughtful, introspective songs that are also catchy. I find in country music, you kind of get one or the other. You either get like beautiful, thoughtful, introspective songs, or you get songs you want to drink a bush light to by a doc, you know? But she is somehow able to do those two things at the same time. And that has earned her a Grammy, uh, 14 nominations, three of which were just announced earlier this month, including Best Country Album. The record's called Humble Quest, and she was on the show not that long ago to talk about it. I thought we'd play a little bit uh, of it in, in honor of her of her nominations. What sticks out about Maren Morris is how dogged she was from the very beginning to make her own career in a genre that um, prioritizes conformity. She wanted to be her own artist. She drove herself to Nashville to make the career that she wanted. Here's some of our conversation. It starts with a song she wrote about that story. I showed up to the new apartment First month, last month, two deposits Drove 
That is Maren Morris and circles around this town from her new album, Humble Quest. So this is kind of what we're talking about. This is, what part of your life is this song about? It's literally full circle because I'm in the first verse talking about how I moved to Nashville from Texas nine years ago in a really crappy, like unforeseen, you know, sight unseen Craigslist apartment. And, but it was affordable. I had two roommates I didn't know and um, a car that had no AC and it was, yeah, it was scrappy, a a hustly time. And uh, so I'm in that first verse, it's super autobiographical to my journey to Nashville, but um, it's definitely in the chorus, like wraps up in this way where it's like, I guess you could say I've made it now, but I'm still searching and trying to aim for this like moving target that's ever changing. And I am constantly getting inspired by new things and discovering new things about Nashville. Like I feel like when you tour as much as I have the last few years, you're never home and you never get to like really explore the town you live in anymore. And it just changed so much by the time the pandemic came around and we touring was blown out for two years. So yeah, I, I think just kind of rediscovering my place in this community, this songwriting community, um, put some gas back in my tank. And I'm like always trying to like get that next song or beat the last one or impress my songwriter friends. And so I feel like that's that ended up being an inspiring way of looking at it and almost um, like you're never really reaching the mountaintop. It's like it's ever changing and it, it just keeps getting more exciting. Was was that the goal? So, well, hold on. Where are you from in Texas? I'm from Arlington, Texas, outside of Dallas. How many there? Well, um, it's it's huge now. There's probably like two million people that live there now because there's like the Cowboy Stadium is there. Um, so it's it's really flourished over the last 10 or 15 years. But it was like pretty suburban when I was growing up there. So when you're, when you told your buddies or even just people in your town, like, Hey, I'm going to move to Nashville to be a songwriter. What was the, was there a, was there a little bit of, yeah, okay, Marin, sure. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. No, I think they were like, finally. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because like, if you are new to my music or my story, I grew up in Texas. And when I was 10, I started, touring and playing shows and honky tonks and bars around Texas. And, um, so I was sort of like a child artist at a very young age. And, um, I didn't move to Nashville until I was 23, but by the time I decided, okay, I'm going to save money so I can move to Nashville and be a songwriter. I think everyone around me, including my family was like, yeah, like, what were you waiting for? But but, but that's, so so I, I I do know your story a little bit and, that's the part that I'm interested in is that, you know, you're playing or you're playing honky tonks, you're an artist. The decision that you want to be a songwriter, not a singer, not an artist, not a performer, you want to be a songwriter is an interesting one at that stage of your life to take on, you know? Yeah, it, it sounds like I'm some old lady that needed to retire, but by the time I was, <laughs> by the time I was 18 or 19, I was really tired from just playing shows every weekend in these bars while the rest of my friends were going off to college. I was homeschooled my senior year of high school 
um, because I was playing shows constantly. And um, so, yeah, I, I was burned out by the time I was 18, 19 years old. So it took me a few years of just deciding, okay, I miss this. I miss performing. I, I miss writing. And I moved to Nashville with no expectations or hopes of getting a record deal. I just wanted to sign a publishing deal and write songs for other artists. And I was, you know, mildly successful at it. Like I, I got a publishing deal a few months after I moved to Tennessee and I started writing with people and, you know, some of my demos on music row were beginning to get heard. And they were like, who's the girl on this demo who's singing. And they're like, Oh, it's this new writer in town, Maren Morris. And, um, I ended up getting to write with like Carrie Underwood and, you know, Kelly Clarkson recorded one of my songs and Tim McGraw. And so, you know, I, I had some success as a writer, but when I wrote my song, my church, I think that's when I realized, Oh my God, I cannot let anyone else have this. Can, like we, this can we, can we play a little bit of that song? Just take, take a listen to this. This wonderful world gets heavy. Maren Morris and my church, we're here talking about Maren's new record, but a little bit about the, the journey to get there. Can I tell you a story? One time I was at I was at a karaoke bar in Nashville. So we're in Toronto right now, but I was in um, a karaoke bar in Nashville on Broadway. And in two hours, I heard four different women sing my church. <laughs> that's how, that's maybe I, uh, my, I made it moment. It was like when... <laughs> My church became a karaoke song on Broadway. <laughs> so, so, so let's go back to what you were saying. So you're saying that, you know, you were writing songs for other people, Carrie Underwood, um, you know, and, and, and we, we all in Canada, we have a long history of Canadian songwriters who go down to do that. Right. You know, Gordy Sampson did really well with it. We were just talking to my buddy Donovan Woods, who, you know, is down there right now doing really well. Um, but I always find that moment really interesting, Marin, where the, the, the writer says, like, no. <laughs> this one's for me. Yeah. And that hadn't really happened before. I had no emotional ties to keeping any of my songs because I wanted to be, you know, like a Hillary Lindsay. I wanted to be a hit songwriter. I, I wanted to have number one parties and have people like sing songs I wrote on huge stages at, you know, the Grammys. And yeah, I, I don't know something just, in my heart clicked and knew that I would be really disappointed if I let my church be recorded by someone else. So I remember being very paranoid and not sending it to anyone via email. I would only play my church, the demo for people in person where I could plug my phone in to their speaker. Like I was so over the top paranoid. Why? But Cause you were worried that someone was going to offer you like a, a truckload of money for it or something like that. Well, I mean, I was just being ridiculous, but also there have been a few instances just in town where an artist will hear a song that a writer actually wants to put out and they just know it's a bona fide hit. Yeah. And so they just go ahead and do it anyways. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen 
friends of mine get burned that way. And uh, I just didn't want to be one of them. So yeah, I was super protective of that song in the beginning. I mean, what a, what a beautiful, what a beautiful rare thing for a song for you to be protective of a song for you to be like, you know what? Everyone get get the hell away from me. <laughs> and then for it to not just become a, a, a hit country song, but a hit country song, like almost we don't have hit country songs anymore. Like, a hit country song that people who like I like country music a lot that's my thing and most of my friends don't like country music um, and all of my friends love my church like it's one of those rare you know what I mean like what a, what a validating thing for you do you learn something there about the importance of trusting your gut in an industry that can make you doubt yourself yeah that's kind of all I have and I don't know if that's my upbringing or just things that I've learned over time but I always listen to that voice because she's always right. And I've listened to her ever since. And it, 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 we started there, but it's never led me down the wrong path thus far. That was part of my conversation with Marin Morris. Her newly Grammy-nominated album, Humble Quest, is out now. Marin's also up for two other Grammys, including Best Country Song and Best Country Solo Performance for Circles Around This Town. If you want to hear our whole conversation, you can find it on the CBC Listen app. Uh, coming up on the show, I hope you can stick around for that. That's going to be in about well, – let me see here now. I see in about 20 minutes from now. Um, you're going to hear a special reading from uh, the Halifax poet Katie Clark. You're not going to want to miss them um, reading their poem. And in that, it's a really powerful poem in the wake of the shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs. You're going to hear that in just a little bit. So, so do me a favor. Stick around for that. But first, before he could drink, vote – or drive a car, Ki Hui Kwan was starring in movies. He was a big child star in the 80s. He played Data in The Goonies. He played Harrison Ford's sidekick Short Round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Wow, holy smoke, class landing. Short Round, step on it. But after a decade on the big screen, Ki Hui Kwan kind of disappeared. He, he didn't show up in any movies in like 20 years and then he made a comeback I'm not your husband I'm another version of him from another universe I'm here because we need your help there's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses and you may be your only chance of stopping it so that right there is a clip from the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once which by the way is my pick for like best movie I've seen for this show in a really, really long time. It's a psychedelic sci-fi adventure. He stars in it, uh, also uh, starring alongside Michelle Yeoh. Both their characters exist in the multiverse and they're trying to save their universe. Ki Hui Kwan has gotten a lot of attention for his acting in the movie. He was just nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Performance. And I was lucky enough to chat with Ki Hui Kwan about the movie when it came out earlier this year. And we talked a little bit about those early days and we talked a little bit about this comeback that he found himself in. And as you're about to hear, this role in Everything Everywhere All at Once was a real dream come true. Hi, how are you? Hi, Tom. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I said this to you before we got going, but I'll say it to you again. I have not loved a film like this in so long. It is so beautiful. Congratulations on it. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to us. You know, it, it's been incredible. I mean, really, um, we had an amazing time making this movie. It was, you know, it was just a little movie. And, you know, I, I couldn't be more happy 
to be a part of this. And I mean, ever since it came out, all the reviews, all the, the audience reaction has been amazing. I, it's an interesting sell for you, though, right? Because it's such a visual movie. Like, there's a universe in which people have hot dogs as fingers, and there's a, a universe where people are as rocks. Like, how does reading the script of that sell you on it? Oh, my gosh. I, I, I remember distinctly uh, reading it for the very first time. It, I, I was very emotional. Really? Uh, first of all, I laughed out loud because it was really funny. Uh, and I cried many times because it was a very emotional script. You know, as you know, I mean, the, 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 the movie, it's based on this family that who are disconnected with one another. And, and it's about love and, 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 uh, and kindness and respect and, and reconnecting with each other again and about intergenerational trauma. And, and I also cried because it was a script that I wanted to read for many, many, many years. And it just didn't exist before. What do you mean it's a script that you wanted to read for many, many years? Well, you know, I, I started out as a child actor back in the, in the, in the, in the early 80s. And, uh, and I was very lucky to, to, to have worked with Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Harrison Ford. And to be in Indiana Jones and the Television and follow that up with The Goonies, it's incredible. I mean, those are two very popular movies. So naturally, I thought I would move on to have this amazing career as an actor. And as I got a little older, uh, I realized how difficult it was to be an Asian actor at that time. Uh, and I found myself just waiting and waiting for the, the phone to ring, honestly. Uh, and it rarely rang. And, and I always, all those years, I always fantasize about reading a script that features an Asian American family. And I never read any of those before until Everything Everywhere All, all, all at Once came along. That's such a beautiful story. I, I, I can't wait. I'm, we're we're going to talk all about that chapter of your life. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy you brought it up. But I, I did want to ask, as an actor, that this film has a bit of a challenge. Because you're, you're essentially playing subtly different versions of the same character over and over again. As an actor, how do you approach something like that? Well, you know, first of all, when I got the call that the Daniels were going to offer me the role of Wayman, and not just Wayman, but three versions of Wayman, and because I haven't done it for so long, uh, it's been more than 20 years, uh, so I was really nervous, uh, but luckily I had three months to prepare for this role, so I hired an acting coach, a dialogue coach, a voice coach so that the different versions of Wayman can sound a little bit different. Wow. And then and then one of the most in, uh, interesting coaches that I hired was a body movement coach uh, because I wanted the different you know versions of Wayman. You can tell, the audience can tell which versions uh, is he. Yeah. Just by the way he stands, he walks, he moves. Uh, and, and my body movement coach had a really interesting process. He would read the script and he would pick a very specific animal for me to do. For example, Alpha Wayman, he picked an eagle because, you know, because you know, Alpha Wayman is a fighter. And then for the movie star universe, uh, for, for CEO Wayman, he picked a fox. And for the Wayman in this universe, he picked a squirrel. So my homework was I would watch countless of hours of videos of nothing but squirrel. In fact, I was even required to print out pictures of different looking squirrels. And I had them all taped on my wall. And that was my homework. And then 
And once when I got through that, I would go to his theater and I would start off 100% squirrel. So I'm on the floor on all fours, crawling and moving around like a squirrel. And then slowly transform myself 100% into Wayman. And that was my process. Did it work? Did it, did it, did it work for you? I mean, I, I hope so. I mean, th- that's not for me to judge, but for the audience to judge. I mean, if they can, if they can tell which version uh, yeah. of Wayman it is up on the screen, just by how he moves or how he stands, then, then, then that homework, that, that all that training paid off. Well, then, yeah, I'll say, I'll say that it did. You know, I mean, you, you can tell sometimes you have to switch characters in the middle of a scene, in the middle of a, of a, a line of dialogue, and and you can kind of tell which which Wayman is, is is talking to you. Let me reintroduce you here for a second. Ki Hui Kwan is uh, one of the stars of Everything Everywhere All at Once. Uh, we're talking about how his character gets to travel to parallel realities. One of the themes in the movie is how our choices can change our path in life. And I want to talk about that in the context of your own life. So you, you started to tell a little bit of your story uh, just then as being a child actor. But as a kid, you, you didn't set out to be an actor at all, right? No, that's the irony of it, is that I, I never thought I wanted to be an actor when I was a little kid. Uh, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time when Steven Spielberg and George Lucas was looking for an Asian kid to be in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So it actually, acting actually found me. Uh, but then as I got older and I fell in love with acting and I, and I wanted to do it for the rest of my life and began seriously pursuing it, ironically, it wasn't there yeah. for me anymore. Really interesting. And it was your brother. Your brother was the one auditioning for the, for the short round gig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, he did. Uh, so they had an open call. And my brother, my brother went to audition. I tagged along. Uh, and I was giving him directions behind the camera. Uh, and, and the casting director saw me and asked me if I wanted to give it a try. And I was just this little precocious kid. And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? I didn't think much of it. Um, and the next day, we got a call from Steven Spielberg's office. Uh, and he sent a driver to pick me up. And I went to his office. I walked in the room. And there was Steven Spielberg, Harrison Ford, and George Lucas. Your poor brother. How, three how, weeks how, later. How was your brother? He, he, I mean, he'll know he's fine. I mean, he never, you know, he, he never wanted to be an actor, you know, in the first place. He, he thought it was just something fun to try out. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, we, we, you know, we have a very good relationship. He's <laughs> okay. my best friend. Okay. And he's very supportive, you know, of what I do. So. Okay. So then three weeks later, you're on set? Yeah, three weeks later, I was, I was on a flight to Sri Lanka. Wow. And it was the best adventure of my life. Right after Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you star in The Goonies in 1985. So what was it like going from Indiana Jones, where you were the only kid on set, to being with a full cast of child actors on The Goonies? (laughs) Well, the difference is, you know, on Indiana Jones, uh, I got all the attention because I was the only kid. Versus The Goonies, I was one of seven. And, and I got to say, man, all my fellow Goonies, actors, brothers and sisters, I mean, they're all professional hams. I mean, they really know what they're doing. You know, in fact, I, I, I always thought it was, you know, the first movie for a lot, of, a lot of them. But, oh, my gosh, they were so good at what they do. And I found myself constantly fighting for attention. But it was something that I was also familiar with because my parents have nine kids. Mm. So, so you know what it's like, you know what it's like to fight for attention. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, and then in the mid nineties, you start working with the famous Hong Kong action director, uh, Corey Yuen. And 
can you talk to me about his style of filming fight scenes and how that was different from the way the Hollywood directors filmed them? It's very different because in Hollywood, you know, when you're on a movie set, uh, you have 200, 300 people and, and, and it's very expensive. In Hong Kong, what they're used to doing is, you know, for example, like Koi Yuan, they're so used to making uh, martial arts films where there's no pre-meetings. They, they choreograph all of their stuff on set because that's where they find the creative juice, you know, so, uh, so to say. And everybody would stand around and just wait for this action team to come up with it. And so they would come up with a, with a, with a small piece and then they would shoot it and then they would choreograph the next piece and they would shoot it. I mean, that's how it was done before. But of course, on a Hollywood production, uh, you, you don't, uh, you're not allowed that luxury. You have to do all the, all the planning, all the choreography beforehand. And I was very lucky that Koi Yuan kind of took me under his wings and taught me all the ins and outs of how to make and how to choreograph and how to shoot and edit an action sequence. Uh, you know, we I remember this is right out of college after I graduated from film school. I got a call from him. And he says, Key, would you like to go, uh, uh, come to Toronto and work on a little movie for me? And I said, yeah, sure. I flew to Toronto. I walk on the set and it was the X-Men. Wow. And we spent nine weeks and we were responsible for the, 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 the ending uh, fight between Mystique and Wolverine. Wow. And that was my first job right out of college. Let me, let me reintroduce yeah. you here. I'm speaking to the actor and stunt choreographer, Ki Hui Kwan. We've been talking about his career in front of and behind the camera. You've, talked, you've mentioned this a couple of times in the interview, but I'd like to talk about it if, if, if you would. You continue acting in the 90s. Around 2002, you kind of go quiet. You didn't appear on screen for 20 years. What, what happened there? Uh, well, that was, I actually decided to step away before that. Uh, because in my late teens and my early 20s, it was just hard. Especially when you're in your early 20s, it's supposed to be the golden years of anybody, you know. Uh, and all I did was sat around and wait for my, my phone to ring. Not an, 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 an offer but an opportunity to audition for roles. And when it came, which it came far and few in between, uh, it was for a character that had maybe one or two lines. And if I'm lucky, it would feature three or four pages, if we're lucky. And when it does come, I will go and walk into the casting office and I would see every Asian actor in Hollywood fighting for this tiny, tiny role. Uh, and it wasn't fun anymore for me. Uh, it was, it was just too, it was just too, I, I just didn't, I just didn't want to audition for those roles anymore. I, I didn't want to sit around and, and wait for the phone to ring anymore. So, but I love this industry so much. I love movie making so much. It's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So that's why I decided to go, you know what? I'm just going to step away and, and I'm going to enroll myself in film school. And I went to USC. Is that, is that hard to, to give up on that part of your life in that moment? Oh, oh absolutely. It was painful because uh, it, it's hard when you're in your early 20s and, you, and you, you find yourself at a crossroad where you look down a path where you don't see a future for yourself. Or 
you choose another path, an unknown path. Yeah. Uh, and I had no choice. So anyway, I, I don't, I don't mean to. No, I understand. I, I, I really appreciate that. I do. I really am grateful to you. What is the experience then that you watch? Is it crazy rich Asians? Yeah. And you go, I, I want back in. Yeah. I mean, again, oh my gosh. Uh, I loved it. And, uh, and I loved it even more when it had this globally phenomenal success where it made over $200 million. Yeah. And that's what I wanted for a movie that featured an Asian cast. Uh, so I loved it. It was a movie that I wanted to see for a, a long time. Finally saw it up on the screen. And I said, you know what? Maybe I should really start thinking about getting back into acting. And it was that movie. How does that feel when you make that phone call? You call a friend who's an agent. Are you nervous? Are you trepidatious to dip your foot back in the water again? Oh, before I make that call, I had numerous, numerous conversations with my wife. Uh, you know, you got to understand, it, it's, it's, I, I didn't make that decision lightly. Uh, I knew if I were to step in front of the camera again, a lot of things would, would, would change. And I just, and I just needed to make sure that my wife was comfortable with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it's not just about me anymore. It's about us yeah. together. Uh, so I had, you know, I, you know, we would talk about it over and over and over again. And I kept asking her, I said, are you, are you, are you comfortable with this? And she says, yes, if this is something what you want to do, then go ahead. You know, you have all my support. Uh, yeah. And so uh, one day I called up an agent friend. Yeah. Uh, and this is after decades without an agent. Yeah. He said, yes. Two weeks later, I got a call about this movie. Oh my God, I'm so bad at this. Tom, you're killing me, Tom. Man, you're I feel like this is a I feel like this is a freaking a therapy session. You're, you're beautiful, uh, man. You're beautiful. This is beautiful. Like I'm 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 beyond moved by what you're saying here right now. This is incredible. Yeah, but I I, I, I should get better. I, I've been doing a lot of interviews like that. I should get better, but every you're time getting I, I better. Go down this path, is yeah. beautiful, man. Like I listen, it makes sense to me. You step, you step your foot back and you know what? You see this movie, you see the representation, you see the success yeah, so, of that movie, and you go, I want to do back. And then this script comes to you? Like this? The script that made you cry when you first read it? I can't imagine how serendipitous that is. Yeah, it was incredible. It was really incredible. And you know, and honestly, even when this when I read the script, I didn't think in a million years that Daniels would, would, would give me this amazing opportunity. Yeah. I kept telling my wife, I said, there's no way, there's no way I would get to play this amazing role that I wanted all my life. So, so when, uh, so when, when, I, when do you get the call? When do you get the call that you got it? Well, first of all, I, I, I went into audition for the Daniels. Yeah. And, and this was after more than 25 years. I haven't been in, 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 in a casting director's office. Yeah. Never. Yeah. I haven't stepped in front of a, a casting director in more than 25 years. Yeah. I walked in and they were so friendly. The casting director, Seraphine, was so gracious and, and warm and kind and, and asked Willie Daniels. And uh, I was really nervous. And I started to audition for them. And as I'm doing it, they're giving me notes as the camera's rolling. 
They say, key, try this, key, try that. And in that instant, the memories, all those wonderful memories of Steven Spielberg on the, on the, on the set of Indiana Jones, giving me similar notes while the camera was rolling. And I went, oh my God, this, this feels so familiar. This feels so good. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and I finished and, and, and uh, I thanked them. I left the room, thought I did a really wonderful job. Called my agent and says, yeah, I, you know, I, I, think I, I think I have a chance. Then I didn't hear from them for two months. Any hope of me landing this role was completely gone. And I go, see, I knew it. I, yeah. I, I, I knew I wasn't going to get it, but it's okay. I, you know, I, I said, okay, I call my agency. So what's, what's next? Yeah. And then all of a sudden we got that call again. And, and my agent says, the Daniels want to see you again. Wow. And I went and auditioned for the second time. Yeah. Again, thought I did really good. Walked out. <laughs> I walked out and saw another Asian actor waiting to read for the same role. <laughs> and he was he was taller. He was better looking. His hair was slicked back. He was in a in a very nice custom made suit. Yeah. <laughs> and he looked like and he looked like literally he looked like he was on the cover of GQ magazine. And you're like, there's no way I'm getting this thing. There's no way I'm getting this. And, thing. and again, and again, I'm like, you know, because I I have, you know, my 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 go-to attire is, you know, t-shirt and and and, and jeans. Yeah. And I look nothing next to this guy. So I went home and I, I called my agent. I said, man, listen, I wanted this part so bad and I gave it my all, but I don't think I'm gonna get it. And uh Three weeks later, I got that call. That's beautiful. Yeah. Could I ask and needless to say, it was needless to say it was the it was the happiest call I've ever gotten in my life. So. And you said maybe I'll do it, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And I, and I wish I could tell you this it was all planned. <laughs> Kiwi Kwan stars in everything, everywhere, all at once. My name is Tom Power. You are listening to Q. Katie Clark is a poet from Halifax. They've written a poem called Trans Day of I Will See You in the Morning. It was created in the wake of the nightclub shooting in Colorado Springs just over a week ago. Five people were killed and at least 17 people injured when a shooter opened fire in Club Q, an LGBTQ nightclub. Katie wrote this poem as the tragedy was still raw, and we asked them to tell you about Trans Day of I Will See You in the Morning and read their poem for you. Here's Katie Clark. I'm Katie Clark, and I'm a poet, playwright, and filmmaker based in Chibuktuk, or Halifax, Nova Scotia. Trans Day of Remembrance was last Sunday, November 20th. It's a day that honors our queer and trans, our trans kin that have passed on and that have been victims of transphobic violence. On Sunday, we were all processing the violence of the shooting at Club Q in Colorado. That violence hadn't really sunk in for me until I went to a drag show on Sunday night and I was looking up at Elle Noir, drag queen, activist, educator extraordinaire in the Halifax scene, and she started talking about our queer and trans kin that had passed on and I was really struck by her words and by the space that was available to me at that show. And I went home and 
on the internet, I found a poem by Colorado-based poet Nico Wilkinson. Their poem included the line, trans day of I will see you in the morning. And so I used their concept and that line, trans day of I will see you in the morning, and responded to it. And so I wrote this poem. It's called trans day of I will see you in the morning. It's easy to forget danger when we dance here and you hold me and we pretend that our losses have left us for good. For good, for good. At the drag show after the shooting, we scream forsaking silence. The silence that follows could swallow us up. At the drag show after the shooting, I realize I am holding my breath. At the drag show after the shooting, I say I love you six times over. I dance out of turn when you take my hands. I watch you, my five foot four trans boyfriend, dance with the tall femmes in six inch heels. Trans day of being horny in public. At the drag show after the shooting, Al Noir glances upward toward our kin. I shed my cishet atheism and follow her gaze, remember transcendence, learn anew. Transness teaches me otherworldliness, teaches me magic I already had but didn't know how to use. I will see you in the morning. I remember that trans kids live forever, that it was customers at the bar that took down the shooter, that heaven is a queer space with free housing and no cops and good coffee and kind trans doctors and dairy-free cheese. Trans elders live forever. Black trans women live forever. Trans love lives forever. Trans day of you won't forget us. Trans day of no spoons left, trans day of one sharp knife, of trans day of I am exhausted, trans day of I love you forever and ever and ever. Trans day of this love outlasts us. That's the poem Trans Day of I Will See You in the Morning by Katie Clark, playwright and poet from Halifax, Nova Scotia. That is it for Q today. Uh, thanks a lot to Talia Schlanger for sitting in for me last week while I had a, a lovely week off, uh, not just the radio show, but uh, also off the internet. I'm back on the internet now. <laughs> if you want to find me there, I'm at Tom Joe Power. The show is at CBCQ. Tomorrow on the show, the Canadian band Sloan will be here to talk about their new record 30 years out of their first major release. We'll see you then later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.